0: Hello everyone, I'm Abhijat Saraswith and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers and innovators. The future is of course a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Hello, everyone. We are still busy preparing for season four of the podcast. In the meantime, this is a bonus content taken from the Fringe Legal Virtual Summit, which took place in May, 2020. This is me speaking with Ben White of the Crafty Council. In this episode, he shares his learning from over 200 or so interviews he's had with law firms and in-house counsel. Recently, I published on the newsletter That Ben had actually made all of the content of Crafty Council free to access. Uh, If you missed that news certainly go check that out and if you missed the newsletter and would like to get three to five interesting insights every week then be sure to go to fringelegal.com and put in your email address right at the top. Without further ado enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fringe Legal Virtual Summit. It's been quite a day already uh, of talks and wonderful sessions. I'm happy here to be joined with Ben White. Uh, Ben is the founder of Crafty Council. And um, Ben is going to talk to us about essentially his findings from hundreds and hundreds of interviews and what he's learned through them and ultimately why lawyers matter. Uh, So that's the topic of the talk today. Ben, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Ab. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on on Fringe Legal.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. And so I I guess, so for those that don't know who you are or what Crafty Council is, um, can you set the stage for how did you get to have these hundreds of conversations and, and then to, I guess, structure the rest of this session, what are some of the findings, if you can sort of break them down into two, three, four bullet points, what would they be? And we can start sort of diving into some of those points.
1: Cool, sounds good. So um, as I said, thanks for, very much for having me on. Um, I have to say I'm much more used to being behind the camera lens than <laughs> in front of it. So, so this is a bit of a, uh, a new skill set and the tables are turned somewhat. So to put context on that, so yeah, I'm the founder of a company called Crafty Council. Um, we're a digital media company. We're focused on uh, educational content for lawyers and we're probably best known as a publisher and creator of video content, uh, mainly aimed at the needs of in-house counsel. Um, And the background comes out of my experiences as a a lawyer. So I started my legal career at Clifford Chance, was there for seven years, um, working primarily in London, and I then moved in-house to an e-commerce company. And when I made that jump, I found that it was a little bit isolating. It was hard to get a perspective on what other legal teams were doing. Hard to get a feeling for what it looked like. And that was across sort of technical legal stuff, but quite a lot of sort of what I now know um, is called legal operations or legal tech. At the time, it just felt like how come we're currying all these signature pages all around the world? Maybe we should think about e-signature. Is that a thing? Of course, it was a thing. So um, yeah, so I started Crafted Council out of sort of my own needs of, of what I wish existed when I was in practice. So the company is a couple of years old now. Some of that period was while I was still working in-house and this was at first a side project. Um, and then um, I ultimately ended up moving to do this full time. Uh, and we primarily what, primarily what we do is, is we create video content We uh, try to think of ourselves in some ways as a sort of almost like thinking different to TED Talks, but thinking like TED Talks for for legal. And so through this journey, um, I've ended up uh, creating hundreds of these videos um, and interviewing um, hundreds of different people across the legal industry. uh, Most of whom, but not all, but more than 50 percent are in-house counsel. So that's why might be interesting in this talk to talk about um, why lawyers are important and, I, and, and tackling that in a bit more granularity, thinking a bit about um, in-house counsel and sort of what's been top of mind for a lot of the, the GCs and uh, other types of uh, in-house lawyers who I've been speaking with over these past couple of years
0: yeah and i think that will be good and i guess to frame the conversation i think i've mentioned to uh, this to you before and the numbers will likely change but i think predominantly probably about 50 60 percent of the audience today and those that will listen to this will likely be law firm so it will be useful for them and uh, the other 50 percent is roughly made up of 48 um, percent, let's say is made up of uh in-house counsel and legal tech companies. Um, and this could be actually lawyers in legal tech companies also, and then the other percentages, people didn't, that, that didn't answer or students, right? So I think ultimately what you're saying, and even though most of your conversations were with in-house counsels, I think certainly there's learnings there to be had. And I'm sure, and I actually don't know what you're gonna say, so it'll be interesting. But I imagine most of that will be applicable across the board because it is a, a you know two, two-way street most of the time.
1: 100%. So, um, I, so actually, the way I would I would pitch this is most of what I want to share with you guys is actually what I think um, law firms and legal tech will be particularly interested in hearing. If you're watching this and you are in-house, great. This, you may agree or disagree with what I have to say. You may think that reflects my experiences or it doesn't. But at least th- this is sort of anecdotage of what some of your peers are saying elsewhere in the industry. I thought maybe what we could do to break it down a bit. I've been having lots of conversations, with lots of different people, but I thought three themes were really interesting. Yeah. And um, so why don't we try and do it like this? So um, I thought theme number one would be I can share a bit about what I'm hearing in-house talk about in their relationship with law firms. So that, that dynamic between the client and the firm. One. Include, um what in-house are feeling about in relation to legal ops and legal tech. And there's a phrase that is starting to get bandied about a bit called legal ops FOMO. So we can talk a bit about that. And then finally, um, this concept of business partnering, uh, being a, a commercial lawyer, a, a, a acting in a commercial way. How basically legal can get close to the business. And that's also something that it seems to be very much top of mind for a lot of the in house folks that I'm speaking to. And I think that's got relevance actually both for in house lawyers and, and law firm lawyers.
0: Yep, no, that, that sounds good. And, and those are sort of three three last themes i'm sure each of them could be individual talks by themselves uh, but we'll try and sort of uh, get through as much of that as possible um so yeah let's let's just start with the in-house relationship with law firms because and then that is something that others have spoken about it is very much something that is top of mind for people and especially in the current climate is something that is probably strained it's fair to say and more than anything else in mm-hmm. for a number of reasons so yeah tell, tell us what you're hearing Okay, so
1: as you say, let's start there. There's, there's not to be a whole talk just on this. Yeah. See how we get time. Um, and uh, but I think that's probably the, the bit that will interest most people who, who are watching this. So um, the relationship between client and law firms. A lot has written about this. A lot. Of, a lot of people talk about this. Um, punchline, I think, from various interviews we've done with GCs when they talk about what they what they like about the firms that they. Like working with, and whether perhaps be a bit frustrated, the punchline is is that there are, there are these big macro trends that you hear about in the legal industry um, on a monetization of work, um, work being so sort of disaggregated, taken away from firms and given to alternative legal service providers, more being brought in house, etc et etc. Cetera, et cetera. so there are big macro macro trends, and we can talk about that um, the punchline is that there are lots and lots and lots of things that you can do if you're working in a law firm to improve and maximize the relationship that you have with your in-house counsel clients but in your control. So the sort of macro themes that get talked about in legal of how this dynamic is changing and how work gets allocated, to a very great extent, very few of us as individuals can actually do anything about that. If you go and speak to GCS, we'll tell you a ton of things that their law firms could do. They will help them um, and will uh, help uh, help the GC out and help help improve that relationship and help win work for the long term. And those things are in your control. So I think that's really important. So the macro stuff, yeah, for sure, let's not ignore it. So. We'll talk about down the pressure on legal budgets. There was already before COVID, this has clearly just <laughs> made that worse, um, at least in the medium and long term. That um, is true. Yes, more work is being brought internally. Yes, new law. Yes, the big four. Um, I was reading today that uh, Y estimates the size of the new law or, or AOSP market as ten point seven dollars in 2017 so, so where it is now um so all those things are true there's a ton of things that actually you can do to um uh to control and improve uh that, that are in your control and that you can do to improve that relationship
0: yeah so and, and i think that's a that's a really important distinction because a people likely hear about these macro trends more than they will the micro trends just because it applies to more people right and it becomes uh, it's better news it gets more coverage uh, more people talk about it because it's easier to understand uh, it's easier for people to weigh in because again the bigger something is the easier it is to sort of try and sometimes predict uh, what may happen or certainly speculate like it successfully predict um, but the the important question as you raised it is can you really control this right is this something that is important to be aware of yes absolutely because guess what your clients will be talking to you about this too and be educated on but are you gonna be able to do anything about it and there's a difference between wanting to do something about it and having absolutely no control right Um, uh, if you look at the global financial market yes maybe maybe some people will be able to influence it um, and you can spend all all day all night worrying about it but you know what can you do and then you have the micro trends Um, yeah so and obviously those are things where you can actually impact and Improve the the relationship, the delivery, and really the the perspective that your clients will have.
1: Would it help if I called out maybe some of the examples of um, yes, what, what I hear from these GCs? Yes, please. So, so over the last, specifically in the last six months, we've done a number of interviews where we've gone to um, experienced GCs, either of, of very large household names or the much smaller companies, and we've said. What have you really enjoyed about working with law firms where that's gone really well? And what's, what have sort of been your pet peeves, your, your pet hates? So I think everyone sort of had different things, but I think the consistent message across all of it, and it's, it's not rocket science, but it's still important, is just applying common sense, um, empathy, and asking lots of questions. Um, so making sure that you as the advisor remember that there's a human being on the other end of the line. So some of the, some of the stuff I heard from GCs is, um, you know, don't be aloof, uh, engage in the problem that your client is, is facing, put yourself in their shoes, read your audience. Um, and this just comes up time and time and time again. Um, you, you also see it, I think a lot on social media. So, um, I, there's a quite an, an active group of GCs on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, you know, for example, Nir Golan in Israel, or or Colin Levy in the U.S. Who um, those are two examples of people who are posting frequently on these topics. And it's it's usually the same thing, which is just ask questions, um, uh, display some humanity, and and yeah, put yourself in your in your client's shoes. That's a sort of abstract concept. Some of the specifics of where I've seen that gets manifested are things like um, being, it's, it can range from the day to day. So, being, when it comes to invoicing, matter management, fees, uh, whole billing process, uh, being fair, consistent, and transparent. One GC said to me, um, why would a law firm, why does no one ever ask at the outset? Of um, engaging with us, um, the housekeeping stuff. So, when do I want to be billed? Um, how do I want the bill structured? And actually, moving on from being, how do I want to be communicated with? So, um, should do I prefer to have a check-in on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, is it every day? Um, what's the should the GC be copied on emails to? Uh, all the other in-house lawyers and all the other people in the client who might be working on a particular matter. So um, really, you might say sort of mundane logistical stuff. Actually, all that stuff makes a big difference. And um, I've been there on both the advisor and, and the client side. And it's often the sort of day-to-day things like that where when they start to go a bit wrong, people can get very, very frustrating. So I guess that's one, the logistical piece but Abby, you
0: look like you were going to ask a question. Yeah, and I was, I was just going to make, make a point actually that I think yesterday or the day before, I, I had this experience myself um, where I had been speaking to someone about the summit um, and I made the mistake of, you know, speaking to them on LinkedIn it was not a real mistake, but, and it was all, it took about five or six interactions for this individual, and I genuinely want to thank them for this, to say, by the way, um, LinkedIn, I'm the slowest to respond on LinkedIn. Right, And it shouldn't be, it should have been for me to ask them, hey, even though we connected on LinkedIn, is this the best way for us to con- to communicate further? Right? Mm-hmm. Should I call you? Should I email you? You know, Should we talk on Twitter? Whatever it might be. Um, and people, you know, as mundane and as basic as some of these things are, they make a big difference because not only will that person appreciate that anytime people ask me, hey, is this the best method of communication for you? I'm generally happy that they have asked me. And most of the time it is yes and second it means that when you're actually working on things especially when you're working on things under pressure if you can communicate them communicate with them in a the way that they appreciate it will make a massive difference and i know there's a couple of cios and one of them he's dyslexic and he's you know sometimes publicly open about it don't send him emails right it just makes it much more harder for this individual call them up mm-hmm. I just want to share that. Yeah.
1: I think that's very true. Ab. And it is that thing of just taking the time to put yourself in that other person's shoes. And I think that's a really good example. Um, to pick up just briefly a couple of the other sort of themes of hearing on this topic of this relationship. I think um, one piece that's been interesting is the whole area around business development. So I had an interesting chat with one interview with one GC who, um, has been, uh, uh, well, she's the uh, former GC of McDonald's in the UK, and she's been a partner in a law firm twice, and she's been in-house in a very senior role. She had a very interesting perspective on business development, and her perspective was, look, we have to, as clients, um, we have to actually appreciate that law firms need this, so they need to be able to market, they need to be able to do BD. Um, And you can't just throw up your hand and not expect that to happen. It's sort of part of the deal. Her advice to firms was think about how you want to do that. Um, Things have probably moved on from a few years ago where your classic sort of big law um, initiative might be to take your client out to um, a sporting event or um, some such thing like that. That's becoming... um, trickier as uh, lots of companies frankly uh, for compliance issues are finding it harder to accept that sort of entertainment and that can be awkward um, when the firm offers that and it can't be accepted because actually it's tripping the company in the bribery policy and I've been on both sides of that when when that's happened. Um, You also actually get a sort of a a, a diversity issue as well in what you pick those sorts of occasions. This particular GC, we got talking about that. And she said what she would find much more constructive than the sorts of initiatives. about when she was in-house. And frankly, just that she doesn't have time to go for lunch with each of those firms um, on that regular period. There aren't that many lunches and she's got to get her work done. She was saying one thing that always surprised her was that the firms didn't invest more in her junior lawyers. So she was saying, look... So much attention is being given by the firm to the GC because everyone thinks, well, that's the most important person that's where the work comes from. That's also the, the, often the busiest person, um, and there's only one of them. And all those junior people are going to quote unquote you know, grow up to become um, the decision makers. And a smart firm might invest a lot more time in spending time with those people and maybe getting their associates to spend time with those people. Um, and that could be a social thing, or it could be training, um, or things like that that they can do together. And that might not when you work next week or in six months, but investing now is going to produce a, a very productive relationship potentially over a period of years. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think I've heard of, I've heard the same thing from from law firms, and it's important and. Um, I've heard the same thing from law firms about tech companies too, right? Everyone wants to go for the decision maker, whoever that is, to the CFO, CIO, CEO, COO. Um, and that's important. You do need to own that one-to-one relationship. Um, but as you said, it's equally important to have that one-to-many relationship. And there are a lot more associates. There are a lot more individuals in IT or finance or whatever um, sector segment you want to deal with. And you need to nurture them. You need to make sure that you're not making them feel like, look, I know you're there. You'll do some of the work, but we don't care, right? We really want to just talk to your boss because, I mean, ultimately, that's how they might feel. Uh, So it's important to make sure that, and it's also important to remember that, guess what? They are often the ones that will be doing a lot of this work um, because a lot of the work, whether it's legal, whether it's technical implementation, gets delegated down. Mm -hmm. And you need to make sure that the people that need to execute on the delivery are actually on your side for whatever that might mean uh, so it is super important to ensure that happens and i would say that probably works the uh, like all of these things i'm sure they it works both ways so as an individual you know if you're a uh, in-house function or a corporate function it's important to make sure that when an associate gets back to you just respond to them because guess what that associate may become the partner at the next panel firm or whatever it might be
1: and, and also like, they all talk so, so if you, the GC is going to ask a um, uh, uh, team mm-hmm. what the experience has been like working with these firms. So um, if you, uh, you, you can't just sort of concentrate on on, on one person, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, one other interesting theme that I've been seeing come out in these interviews is also, I think, again, anecdotes to a degree, but. I think we're seeing um, a sort of generation of GCs coming up who are increasingly mindful of the, the way that this relationship is two-way with the firms and not trying to do that thing of you, you basically you get beasted working in a law firm, you work all the hours that God gives you. You go in house, and then you sort of you turn you, you turn it all back on the firm, and uh, yeah. you're sending work out on a Friday night, getting false deadlines, etc. I think many people on either side of that fence would recognise occasions where they've seen that sort of behaviour. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I am increasingly meeting GCs who are trying to think in a very different way, who are one respectful of the fact that well the, the firm it's a business and you have got if you're going to take then you also have to give so if you're going to ask for things like um free training or know-how or advice on what legal tech maybe you should use all those sort of you know, the quote-unquote value add things you have to calibrate that to your relationship with that firm but if you're not Spending a material amount of work to that firm, there are certain asks which are you know a bit in, a bit unreasonable. You need to think about that. So comments and, and another example. Um, also, I'm increasingly speaking to GCs who are looking at this macro topic of segregation and uh, you know different picking from pieces of a transaction, sending out to different people, and say so, and and asking themselves, well. Can we do this in a way which isn't just solving for a race to the bottom and getting this done at the cheapest possible rate but number one it about that there's pockets of expertise that maybe this work can be done better by certain types of organizations than others um, and also can we get all of us working together in a in a more collaborative way so and we rather than seeing this in a in a negative way that will take work away from the magic circle and we'll get to new law we actually be doing projects where everyone's hooked up and uh, firm new law in-house team everyone's working together in a way where it's
0: more than some of the parts yeah and uh, i think it becomes important because they have to realize that most of these projects have become so big that they generally they're not always do need involvement from Many entities, whether it's multiple firms um, or mul- multiple departments, and it becomes it becomes someone's role to be able to manage the whole thing, and you have to do so in a delicate way because you don't want to continue sort of pitching people something that you know they have from somewhere else. Uh, I think there was an example that you shared with me uh, previously when we spoke um, around competition law, and. It, and you know, because you you want to walk that delicate line where you are providing value, and of course you do as a business. You want to cross sell to other functions, um, but you have to know when to do that. And in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to ask those questions that you talked about to begin to begin with. And feel free if you want to share that example.
1: Yeah. yeah, that was a funny funny story that this one GC was saying to me. Look, I know that the firms need to cross sell, but. Uh, you, you just have to say you say you've got to pick your time and her example was look, if i've used a particular firm for competition law and the firm who does all of my protection work says to me one day hey can i introduce you to our competition lawyers right like, i know that you're a full service law firm i know that you have a competition department you know that we use these other people right. um like no like i'm not good like if i if I wanted to speak to your competition lies, I would have thought of it, because everyone knows you You obviously have a competition job. Um, So she was sort of sympathetic to the fact that um, it's sort of part of you've got to play the game, Um, uh, but uh, you pick your manner.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I, I mean, it, it is tough, right? Because I can sympathize with the other side as well, because you, you don't want to make an assumption that they do know about your competition law department. Yeah, they yeah. probably do. Right. But it is, it is that approach and that does make all the difference because just sending a text, Hey, you know, maybe it should be a part of a conversation and ask them say, look, we know that you're working with X, Y, and Z firm, um, when it comes to competition law issues, um, if there's ever a time where you might be looking for new work uh, or you have a new project, um, we obviously have a team, love to, love to be involved or whatever it might be, right? It's a slightly softer approach rather than putting them in, a, in an awkward position of having to say no. Um, people don't like doing that and they will and they should, um, but if you can give them an out where you know the, the answer might be a no to begin with, it helps a lot.
1: I totally agree and the cross-selling thing is a, it's a similar point to actually the content marketing thing mm-hmm. so the same gc was saying to me look I, that she always groans when um a company if their company have been in the news for some bad reason then the email pops in saying you know saw this and thought of you can we help well <laughs> yeah. at the point that 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 problem has made in the news then you probably you're probably lawyered up so to speak. yeah and Actually, I think that is, it links across to what we're seeing today with COVID-19. Um, so I, a lot of firms are understandably producing COVID-19 content. Um, you yeah. really understand. A lot of that is taking the form of sort of updates and force majeure. And there's a, a, a slight prepancy because I'm hearing from people who – um, are involved in, in marketing. Uh, some of the most read content um, law firms are pushing out at the moment are, uh, is the, the force majeure content. On the other hand, if you pretty much pick any PC uh, uh, at the moment and say, what do you think about some of the stuff that's coming out from the firms on the current pandemic, you will have you, know, you will hear groans, maybe some pretty bad language, eye-rolling, all about the volume of like, similar stuff which is being produced on false majeure clauses, and uh, I I was having a chat with the GC today who's making exactly this point, and he was saying, you know, I really do wish that instead of taking time to write that article, they just picked up the phone to me and asked, you know, how am I doing? How can we help? Maybe there's nothing, but you know, what are you guys going through at the moment? Yeah, which is harder. And as a as a lawyer, that's kind of not how we're We're trained. And as I say, I've done in house and in a firm. And very much like go to is to feel, well, I should write something. I should share my expertise. And probably the right format is to put that in a client briefing because that's kind of what we do. But the problem is, everyone else is doing that. Uh,
0: And I'm laughing because I heard exactly the same story from someone where they said, look, this information is useful, but I have. 40 of these things to read that all have the similar title. They all say the same thing probably. Um, It's so much easier. And I will be that you'll be, you'll become such a valued provider if you just pick up the phone and write the briefing, but summarize it to me in three minutes and then send me the thing to read. I will absolutely probably read that once I know that this is actually useful to me because as a business, as a firm, everyone understands that you do have to produce these things. As things happen, you have to react. Um, what they find it difficult to understand is how it relates to them and their business, particularly, right? And that's what the phone call does. So you can—I think—that's a good, a good compromise where you can do the work of writing the briefs and whatever, but also absolutely please pick up the phone and make that human contact. Yeah, great. Um, so, so we, we talked quite a lot about the macro and the micro issues. Um, uh, the second point I wrote down is just a bullet point was legal ops and tech FOMO. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> t- tell us more. What, what, what does that mean? What are you seeing? What are you hearing?
1: Um, what I'm hearing is that uh, there's obviously legal tech is obviously really, really hot at the moment. I mean, hey, yeah. we're, we're, we're at this again. <laughs> And there are a lot of providers and a lot of potential solutions um, and a lot of vendors and a lot of events. And what I'm hearing from the in-house community, which is a a significant part of the buying community ultimately, um, is it it can be a bit overwhelming. So if you're kind of not in, quote unquote, the scene, and it's quite hard to, you see all these events, it's quite hard to know where to start. Yeah, And if you are, and if you go to all these events, also there's just so much. And, and often sort of products which, if you're not deep into it, may seem to be doing quite a similar thing. Yeah, And quite quite hard to um, find a sort of impartial way, impartial sort of entry point as to what all the different pieces are. So we actually did a box set. Um, like a Netflix box set, we call our video content box sets. Um, on the, specifically on this topic, uh, legal ops FOMO, and we had we're very fortunate to have um, Stephanie Hammond, um, who looks after legal legal ops at Northern Rhodes Fortright, Barclays. She led an interview series for us with a series of legal ops professionals on this theme of legal ops FOMO. Um, so some GCs, some specifically sort of legal ops people. Um, senior, junior, different phases of their career, different sectors. Um, and what we were really exploring in that series was um, how do you get away from this FOMO sense that so you go to the you go to the event, and you the typical pattern is you have some panels. It sounds like everyone's knocked it out of the park. They've all they've got all the AI, they've got all the all the blockchain. Um, everything's automated, machine learning, everything. And um, uh, and if you're if you're just watching this as a participant, you can think, crumbs, like, we haven't done any, we haven't got e-signature. We're still, we're still signing bits of paper and that's that to um, And you think, well, everyone else needs to have this sorted. And then the funny thing is, actually, that after often you then enter conversations in the margins of these events and you realise, actually, that's not true, that um, you know, maybe sort of as far as it went, the story was true, but actually what you don't hear is how hard it was to implement, how little buy-in there was, how much pushback there was on budget, um, what went wrong, all of that stuff. And so what we tried to explore in that series was how do you sort of get past that, and how do you move from a, the sort of analysis paralysis of too many options, um, you know, where to start and everyone else seems to be somewhere ahead of us to actually, what can we do? What can we do ourselves?
0: Yeah. And uh, I think this impartial entry point that you talked about, um, and That's really useful because uh, it's probably worth doing an exercise both as a technology vendor and as someone who's a buyer to imagine that you are not from this space, from from legal uh, specifically, and you go to one of these trade shows or whatever format they take now with COVID-19, right? You, you visually are browsing through a library. Would you really be able to understand what the purpose of some of these tools are? Right, and that's obviously a marketing thing for a lot of these vendors um, and some of them do a really good job but then the second point is if you speak to customers if you speak to other firms and probably even if you speak to individuals internally within your business um, it's rare that you will get the complete picture because you know you know the sometimes the answers are predicated on the questions that you ask I mean it's similar to this I think we're having a very frank open discussion where we are highlighting the pros and the cons, so to speak, and it is not a rosy world out there and there are complexities to it and people don't appreciate that because for one thing, if nothing else, even if the picture is fully true, you have no sense of time, right? Because all of those things would have happened and you can say, look, yep, we had a discussion with our finance team, we had a discussion with the engineering team, we had a discussion with this and then that, and we managed to get this project done, it was awesome. What they don't tell you is it took 18 months, right? It makes it seem like this was an overnight success, and sometimes it can be for sure, depending on what the tools are. Um, and I would say based i 'm just summarizing basically what you said, but it 's important to at least ask those questions and even here when you 're listening to us, you should think deeper into okay what else should we ask people to understand these points and you know it does to me goes back to the questions that you 're able to ask individuals um, how how else are they because, I mean, it's obviously within tech and generally, FOMO is uh, important. And when people get um, swept up in the hype, which is also important because that's how you actually make big changes happen. Um, so yep. I'm all for it. Yep. Yep. How, how do you actually manage that? How do you get people to sort of just think about, look, who else should we speak to? What, what do we ask them? And how do they manage it internally within their business? Because I can imagine what would happen. You see an awesome tool, and I would do this. You go and check it out immediately. You tell 100 people about it. Um, how should they sort of plan that process a bit better?
1: So I think a, a few themes um, stuck out, and I can't just tell so I'll just, I'll just list them and we can go um, through. But yep. so I think number one, Um, advice from this series was uh, be really really rigorous around what the problems that your business has actually are and what you want to solve but yes get inspiration about things unknown unknowns things you haven't even thought of by all means but it ultimately it's got to come back to is there an actual use case what is it um is tech the best way to fix it is there another way so being really rigorous there that's that's your north star everything has to come yeah. back to that really then number two understanding actually what the pre-existing capabilities of the business are so maybe and this comes up a lot maybe there's tech that other functions are using which is kind of good enough and not yeah. only good enough but it might um Uh, you might be better off uh, not having an okay solution, which is common to the rest of the business than Mm -hmm. making a case to buy something that is just for legal um, for various reasons. Um, Then as you look then outside, if you're satisfied that you do need to to look for for help, and this might be tech or it might be almost sort of operational expertise, pulling on, different types of network that you have. And that might be networks of other in-house lawyers, um, it, it formal or informal. Um, it might be organisations like Buck or Association yeah. Corporate Council. Yeah, might also be firms. But going back to how can firms help, um, I've heard mixed messages of sometimes yeah. you know, in-house teams saying, I feel that we're, we're more up to speed sometimes than the firms, or at least the problems we're trying to solve are quite different contract management. It's a problem for us. It's not really something that the law firms can can help us with. Also, I have heard many in houses say they do appreciate the heads up, the steer from law firms who have used some of these tools and might be able to come in the right direction. and might be also able to give a view on what is right for a corporate to think about using versus what's the sort of thing that really is just for a law firm. Maybe it's very Mm transaction-specific. And and if the extent that it touches what the in-house team is doing, maybe it should only be because it's something that the law firm are using in the
0: Yeah, and I think one of the key things I. that I took away from there that I wrote and underlined and highlighted is understand the problem that you try to solve. So, so frequently uh, people sort of dive in with either technology or some, it doesn't have to be technology, just something. And they don't really know what they're looking to achieve, what the end result looks like. So you have to be able to measure what's happening today what you're looking to try, what are you trying to achieve and then figure out how do you get there? How do you go from point A to point B? You have to also understand your business, right? You have to know how does this work within the whole business context and ensure. And I think that's where understanding what else does the rest of the business use? If it's something that you can utilize within legal um okay, great. As you said, it might be okay. It may not be perfect, um, but maybe at least in the short term, you have something and you can actually use that to evaluate the potential value of this uh, of this type of technology. And, and those things, again, just come back to thinking through so many of these points because people do struggle in just seeing the really, really big picture and then breaking it down into small parts because you kind of just go at it full steam ahead.
1: I, I think that's right, and I think that actually there's a commonality across discussion around tech and, and legal ops, and our early discussion around firms. Mm. But ultimately, if you're in a um, if you're in a, a service provider relationship yeah. um, and you have clients, if you are making your clients successful and look really good, um, because if if you're a firm, the transaction has been a success. Manage superbly and come in on budget. Um, I, if you're a tech provider, because thing, mm-hmm. there were real problems, they got solved, and so your client is now a hero, his or her internal client. That's, that's surely like what you should be aiming for. And if you can do that, then that is going to surely a path to success. And if the opposite is true, if, if because of the way that you have dropped the ball or you have uh, not qualified your your sales sufficiently yeah. and someone has bought the wrong thing or the transaction has gone off the rails um, and the person you have sold to is embarrassed and coming under pressure internally, um, that's, that's not where you want to be. <laughs> and so it may sound... Um, I don't know, uh, shallow, but uh, I think just a big, a big part of life is making your, your clients successful. Make them look good and you will prosper too. Uh, embarrass them and make them look bad and a career is gonna suffer and ultimately so is yours.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think it has other secondary benefits as well, because if you not only will this client be probably eternally grateful to you, if you make them look like a hero and amazing at work to their clients, it also means that they will, uh, you know, as you said earlier, they will all talk uh, they will tell their friends, their colleagues and their network about you. So it is a you know one of those sort of low-hanging fruits yes it's not gonna happen overnight uh, but certainly it makes a big difference especially it's a relatively small industry compared to the world um, so yeah ensuring that you focus on that all right so we've covered essentially the in-house relationship with law firms we looked about we talked a little bit about legal ops and the, the tech firm aspect of things mm-hmm. um, and I think we started touching on sort of the partnering and commercial awareness of things. Um, so, that if you wouldn't mind just being conscious of time, just moving to sort of that sort of segment in the closing.
1: Sure, you're right, Aben, and I'm conscious of time. I think that we were right to focus on the firms and the legal ops firm and stuff. I think the business partnering is just that uh, you hear a lot of phrases to describe the same thing in commercial, business partnering, being a business enabler. Um, a lot of this gets talked about in the context of how in-house works with their internal rights mm-hmm. um, it is I think goes to a seated psychological fear that a lot of in-house lawyers have uh, they are seen or may be seen by the rest of the business as blockers not commercial no police the place where yeah. uh, projects going to die all that stuff we've, we've all heard it Um and so, a, a huge amount of focus is, is put on this concept of, well, how can you not be those things? How can you be the opposite? You're the place where um, you're in the room when the project is first talked about. So, actually, you helped shape it. So, so you never got in a position where you had to say no because it was your thing anyway. That's sort of. So, there's a lot of so, so discussion in DC circles about how do you get there. Um, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of the themes are, we've actually picked up already in this conversation. It's around empathy, being human in their shoes, when they're in, in, in the in house council shoes, um, thinking about their own customers' needs, uh, collaborating cross functionally, putting up networks of stakeholders, mm-hmm. um, having invested in those relationships. And so, actually, it, it all turns into one circle, just as the law firms need to think about how they most effectively invest in relationship with their clients.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In turn, DC and the others in the in-house team are doing that themselves. Um, and so that, I think, is a common thread of what we've been, been talking about um, on, on this talk ab. But actually, yeah, through all these conversations, the, the golden thread has been, empathy being human being being collaborative and thinking about the people that you're working with
0: yeah and uh, i think it's so important just to start taking a genuine interest in the people that you're speaking with um and one of the themes that certainly become obvious through all the talks so far and what people will likely hear um later today is right now uh, your clients, the lawyers, the law firms, everyone's being probably the most open they've been in a long time, right? They're literally inviting you, whether they have a choice or not, is a whole other thing, into their homes, right? I can see into Boy. your uh, study, living room, uh, wherever you're sitting today. Uh, I see the cool map in the background. Um, <laughs> you don't get to see that very much, and you don't get to see that very often. Um, and it's another reason to start creating. Multi-layered conversations beyond just that transactional commercial thing of saying, "Hey, look, I know you want to get this deal done. You want to get this transaction done. This is what we need to do." Um, when you can see there's like seven kids running in there around in the background, one fallen over and crying. To completely ignore that is is just futile. Um, so it's important to do that. And as you do that, uh, one of the things that I got taught in law school, uh, which didn't really, I didn't reflect on until much later in life, was you want to become that connector. It's so important to ensure that when you listen to someone and they say, oh, you need this, you may not be able to deliver that information, but you should, if you find someone else who would be suited for it, become that connector because every time those two individuals meet in the future, you may come up as, oh, you remember that time Ben, and, ben, uh, you know, ben connected us six years ago? And it helps to build your brand. It helps to do a lot of things. And I mean, obviously doing things like this, I get to be able to connect to a lot of people because I'm very fortunate that I get to uh, talk to a lot of people. But I, I think it's it's missing a lot of the times um, because people don't pay that much attention. I agree with you, Maura. All right. Well, I was hoping you're going to rebut me, but, <laughs> 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 um, all right. So, uh, w- w- one last thing I do want to sort of touch on before we wrap up, um, you know, uh, probably what we've talked about, talked about a lot today, people will likely have heard about a fair amount in the media, wherever they get the information, hopefully crafty to council. Um, what are some of the things that you don't think are being discussed as much as they probably should be discussed at this stage? Um, and I want to bring this up, and we, we probably don't have time to go into detail here, but I do want to tee this up as you know further pondering for individuals that are listening to this, uh, because I, I think some of these points are important. Um, so, and yeah, what are some of those things that you hear people kind of mention, maybe in passing or otherwise, but it doesn't well, get discussed well, as much?
1: Well, thanks for the question, Ab, and I'll, I'll give you one maybe uh, everyone can go away and reflect on. Um, and in some ways, it's the flip of this uh, notion of, of being commercial, um, and that's that it's all very well being being commercial and really empathizing um, as a lawyer with your, it's really about in-house, with your internal client's needs. But the danger is when what the, what the business, let's put a face on it, what maybe the CFO or some other person wants is actually taking you to a dangerous place. Um, and where you find that there are things happening in the business, maybe things that you're part of, which um, are things that you don't feel comfortable with, either because they are illegal or because they, they just don't feel like the right thing to do. Um, and sometimes you, you, you get there in a, in a process, sort of salami-sliced, and before you know it, um, you are in an ethically uncomfortable place. I think that's the particular ethical pressures i can come on i can come an in house counsel who don't have the infrastructure of a firm to support them. You don't have other clients who they can they can't just fire that client unless they leave and go and get another job. Um, it can be a particular sort of sort of pressure and a particularly hard um, place to be. And for obvious reasons, you don't hear about that as much as all the stuff around people giving advice on how to be a really good business partner, how to be commercial, how to make stuff happen. Um, this is more about when do you have to say no. Um, and so I think it would be interesting to hear more about that. Um, I think it depends slightly how it's framed. We surveyed uh, across the council members a while back on content they might be interested in. And ethics sort of came out very low on that survey. But then when you slightly t- flip the question and, and ask, well, are you interested in times when GCs have been asked to say yes to something that they didn't approve of um, or felt that the business went around them uh, because they knew they would say no to something? People are more interested about that. And And when you start – when people start talking to you confidentially and when you start – you know asking around there are quite a few of these stories um and probably as reasons it's hard for those to make it into into the public domain and it's and it's hard for those people because if you're going through that situation you don't necessarily know others have been through the same thing and you don't necessarily know where to turn so it's an interesting area um a few people certainly i know in the uk who spent a bit of time thinking about this uh, there are a few academics who write on this. Uh, we interviewed Professor Richard Moorhead, who co-authored a book on ethics for in-house lawyers. He's now the head of the law school at Exeter University, it was it UCL? Um, and uh, you know, his work might be an interesting place to start. There are a lot of a lot of interesting stories out there once you start to look.
0: Yeah. And I think that's such a pertinent point uh, point, and just the ethics of it it all. And as you said, I guess the the, the tricky thing is you don't know who else has gone through this, how they resolved it and and things of that nature. So yeah, actually having resources that at least you can reflect on to begin with um, will, will be helpful. And hopefully there'll be more content to follow where people can actually get a a library of resources uh, so again there's no right or wrong answers in a lot of these instances that's what makes it so sort of tricky well, well i
1: can't i can't not plug ad our interview <laughs> with richard moorhead on crafty council so uh, uh if, if people are looking for content on this i suggest starting there and uh, and then you can follow those
0: oh, absolutely um awesome all right i think that's a good point to start wrapping up so ben thank you so much for coming on today um I will certainly give you an opportunity to plug now because I really enjoy some of your content. Um so if people don't know um what crafty council is, want to find out more, or if actually the first time viewer on the site, uh, where should they start? Oh interesting.
1: So um thanks Ab. yeah, so head over to Crafty Council, crafty council.co.uk. Um have a route around our box sets. So like Netflix box sets. Um you can see uh, 50 Shades of Whistleblowing, um, and uh, where we interviewed the whistleblower behind South Africa's Enron. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, also, I would recommend our series called In-House Insights, where we're on, on location to, for example, our, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays, um, uh the Roald Dahl Story Company, the Crown Estate, various in-house teams and interviewed everyone from paralegals up to GCs, a bunch of the internal stakeholders on how the team is organized um, and uh, technology projects and other things that they've got up to. So I think that that would be where I'd suggest it. We should start.
0: So, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, your contact is also down below, so if people want to get in touch, they can do. And yeah, thanks once again. Have an uh, enjoyable rest of your day. Thanks very much. Jan. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Sarasworth. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Sarasworth is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.